0: I have been lucky enough to spend most of the last three weeks on Iona. We returned just a couple of days ago. Iona is the Hebridean island, which itself lies off the island of Mull. It's the home of the abbey and of the Iona community. Um, And it's the place where Columba first brought Christianity to these islands, to, to Great Britain. Um, It's the place that uh, George MacLeod famously described. George MacLeod was the founder of the Iona community. He famously described it as a thin place where the veil between heaven and earth is stretched thin. We were, of course, buffeted by the winds of whatever the name of the latest storm is while we were there. But the main feature was the wonderful light that we experienced throughout these three weeks. Mornings, dawn could break, sandy orange or a brilliant, vivid red. The sky was so clear that the distant islands were picked out in detail. You could see Staffa, Col, Tiree. You could see the Paps of Jura. You could see as far as rum and even sky. And it felt like you could reach out and actually touch those islands. And in the afternoons, if the clouds gathered, they took on the colours of violet. And the evenings, uh, looking across the sound towards the Ross of Mull, the granite rocks were glowing pink Um, Along the shoreline, we were seeing oyster catchers and ring plovers and curlew. And off the north edge of the island, there was a little group of um, great northern divers in their winter plumage, just spending the winter in the choppy water just offshore. Up on the hill, the the rough and boggy ground they call the hill, up on the hill you could still see the spikes of bog asphodel, the plant that covers those hills in gold in the summer. And the little leaves of sundew, you know, the insectivorous plant, it has these tiny hairs on its leaves, each topped with a little kind of sparkling drop of sticky dew, which is what traps the insects. And of course, this is the island. This is the island famous for its corn crakes. Corn crakes were once common bird right across Great Britain, but modern agricultural methods have driven them right out to the fringes. But there, they skulk in the long grass and in the beds of yellow flag iris. And they call incessantly both day and night. A noise incident which is best expressed in their, in their Latin name, their scientific name, which is Crex, Crex, which is just like their sound. And, and Iona has this additional advantage that it's one of the homes, one of the heartlands of Celtic Christianity. That, uh, that, that, that spiritual tradition which sees God in the everyday But which also um, sees nature, uh, sees the main purpose, the primary purpose of creation, to serve as a revelation of God. In in the Celtic tradition, nature creation is the larger, it's the second, it's the larger of the two books which uh, relate God's glory, God's nature and God's purpose. And of course, this is the island where the oyster catcher is named uh, Saint Bridget's bird, where the where the Ida duck is Saint Cuthbert's duck or the Cuddy duck, and where Columba himself is the dove. So that was Iona, and then, and then, I came back to London, where we live, uh, to be precise, Upper Holloway, Finsbury Park, in the London borough of Islington, to to grimy streets, to air pollution, to the constant noise of the A1, to litter, to an abandoned mattress at the end of our street. And the task for me, and, and perhaps for all of us in different ways, the task for me is to bring Iona into Islington or into Ilford or anywhere else, beginning with I, for that matter. It's, it's to find our own thin place in the in a city. And it's a task which has become even more urgent because sometime in 2014, the world passed the point where 50% of us now live in cities or in, in urban conglomerations. And in this country, the figure is eighty percent. Eighty percent of this people in this country live in cities. So, if we are to reconnect with nature at all, the city is our reality. The city has to be our starting point. <clears throat> so, I wondered how I could begin this idea, how I could develop this idea of of a virtue of exploring nature wherever you happen to be in the city, in the most seemingly hostile and unlikely environment. A lot of what I want to talk about, by the way, is the idea of, of digging where you stand. A, a, a phrase I first came across in the writings of, um, of someone whose name I've just forgotten, a Quaker writer, Alistair Macintosh, Alistair Macintosh, digging where you stand. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you on a virtual walk briefly around St. Paul's Cathedral, around the, around the immediate streets around here. Um, I am going to um, avoid the most obvious. I'm, I'm going to leave aside the fact that I have seen peregrine falcons circling over the Dome of St Paul. Excuse me, I, mean, I also have a cold. I'm going to ignore the beautiful tree color that you can see, that the autumn colors in the trees uh, just to the east of the cathedral in the squares and parks and gardens there. I'm going to concentrate on things that are easily overlooked, that you might be unaware of, that you might never notice, the little, the insignificant, the extraordinary in the everyday. Um, uh, and I also want to, if I can, there's some wonderful line by Thomas Traherne, something infinite behind everything appears. So if I could illustrate that idea too, that something infinite behind everything appears. So if you're ready, we'll set out on our walk. Um, and in terms of things that are overlooked, nothing can be more overlooked. I've got a little envelopes here. With my surprise, like opening the um, Oscars, isn't it? Um, nothing could be more overlooked than this. I'll pass it round if you don't mind fingering it, but this little thing here, it looks like a cushion of moss. Shall I pass it to you if you want to have a look at it? It looks like a cushion of moss. In fact, it is one of our smallest flowering plants, and you can find it just outside here. Look in the cracks in, in, in the, between the paving stones, look in the cracks between the cobbles, and you will see this tiny, tiny plant with little elongated leaves. It has um, Often it has its dry, transparent seed cases on it. When it's in flower, which it isn't now, it has these tiny, star-like white flowers. It's called pearlwort, by the way. Um, And I think it's related to the chickweed family. But this pearlwort, because it forms these cushions on the ground, the story that was told about it was that when Christ was lowered from the cross, the pearlwort formed cushions so so that it softened the place where his foot first touched the earth. There's an alternative story, that when Christ rose uh, from the den in his tomb, then pearlwort formed the cushions for his feet to walk upon. So it has, tiny incident thing, has, it has this wonderful folklore, and because of that, it's become, uh, it's become particularly sa- it did become sacred, particularly in the highlands and islands. You would take pearlwort, and you would put it above your door to bless your house, or if you had a fishing boat, and you were about to go to say, so you'd, you'd put pearlwort on the front of your boat, there is a lovely charm or blessing <clears throat> that was written about it. Perhaps I'll tell you one other use. It has a romantic use as well. It has secular as well as the sacred. If you put a bit of it in your mouth and kiss your intended, you will bind them to you forever. That's a little additional free tip. But going back to the more sacred, um, there's a lovely charm or blessing that's written about the pearl. which it has several of these blessings, actually. I will call the pearl word beneath the fair sun of Sunday, beneath the hand of the Virgin, in the name of the Trinity, who willed it to grow, while I shall keep the pearlwort, without ill mine eye, without harm my mouth, without grief my heart, without guile my death. All that, really, from this tiny, insignificant plant. But I'm going to move on to a second one. This one I found growing in Amen Kulte in the little alleyway that leads down to the cathedral precinct and growing on the side in Armin Court. <laughs> My specimens have got rather crushed if I picked them yesterday, but uh, if you can just about make this one out, it has, uh, and you can see from here, it has these lovely red stems and it has tiny, tiny flowers, which if I pass it round, you'll see the flowers are very insignificant. They're in the axles of the leaves, which means that this is a plant which is, um, is fertilised by the wind rather than needing to attract insects. Um, and it's in the stinging nettle family, incidentally. We have four, it's not, it doesn't sting itself, this one, but it's in the stinging nettle family. We have four members of the stinging nettle family in this country, and you could probably find all of them within a quarter of a mile of this cathedral. But I, I've chosen all of these for a reason, and the, and, and the reason I chose this one is, I, I'll pass this one around, this is, have I said the name of it yet? Thank you. It's called, it's very significant as well, it's Pelletry of the wall. Pelletry. The, the Latin name is Paraterius judaica, and Paraterius means of the wall. And Paraterius has been corrupted into pelletry. so literally the English name of this plant is of the wall, of the wall. It reminds me that my favourite of all scientific names, this is a complete aside, is the European toad, whose scientific name is Bufo, Bufo, Bufo. But this is off the wall, off the wall, which gives you a clue as to where you might find it growing. Originally stones and rocky places, um, but now on urban walls and street sites. And, and to me, this has been increasing in, in, in London in the last 10, 20 years. So this is Pelletry of the wall. That's coming round. Now, better get back to the microphone. One of the old schools of herbalism was called the Doctrine of Signatures. And the Doctrine of Signatures taught that God gave everything a sign as to how it should be used. So something with fleshy leaves, like the lungwort, was used to treat respiratory complaints. Something with yellow juice, like the greater celandine, was used to treat jaundice. Things with a particular shape, like spleenwort or liverwort, were used to treat ailments in that part of the body. Pelletry of the wall, growing in stony places. Can you tell me what it was used for? There is a prize. Absolutely right, but I lied about the prize. Um, Gallstones. It was used to treat gallstones. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not recommending these things as contemporary medical treatments. I'm not saying go home and try this for yourself. But what I love is that idea that all things bear the signature of God. And that's something we could be looking for around us, the signature of God in everything we see. I have more specimens, but I'm going to move on. So I keep to time and I could, might come back to them if there's time later. But I do want to talk about one more. Um, and it's growing on in the tombstones in the churchyard. If you go to the rose beds, um, where the roses have been cut down to their old stumps, those stumps are covered with it too. I'm talking about the lichen. And I found some sticks. That had fallen from the plane tree, which are covered with this beautiful lichen. There, there are. Have a lichen. Have a lichen to pass round. I've got, I've got more. I can be generous with this one. Have a lichen. There are eighteen thousand species of lichen. And I'm not familiar with the names of that many of them, to be honest, but I do know this one. This one is called Xanthoria, um, and it's known also, uh, unlike many uh, lichen, it has some English names. I think it's Golden golden Shield or Yellow Scale or Sunburst. And this particular lichen is used as a well-dressing. When, when they do the well-dressings in Derbyshire Wells, they use this lichen. And it's also a lichen which is used to make a dye. And, um, in the boulders, the Scottish boulders, when they're preparing Easter eggs for rolling, they dye it with a dye from this lichen. I have to say, we tried this at home, because we used to um, dye eggs and roll them, and I, personally, I never managed to get a successful dye off the lichen that came from the plane tree in our garden. But uh, there's something else, really, I want to say about lichen. The big issue about lichen is that for hundreds of years, no one has been absolutely certain what they are. For a long time, as people discussed them, they, 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 they labelled them in all sorts of ways. They thought they were fungus, fungi, or algae. They thought they were moss. They invented a group called musco fungi They called them degenerate mosses. They called them vegetable monstrosities. They believed that they had generated uh, spontaneously from the action of sunlight on decomposing water. And there was all these different ideas swirling around about what is a lichen, until... In 1867, a a Swiss botanist called Simon Schwendener got up at the annual general meeting of the Swiss Natural History Society, and he said, he put forward this idea that actually the lichen was not one thing, but two. That um, among the fibrous fungal cells of the lichen, there was a row of algal cells, and the fungus and the algae were living together and mutually supporting the organism. This idea was greeted with ridicule. I can't tell you how vituperative were the comments that other scientists were making about it. They called him Simon the Simpleton. They called it a fungal fantasy. They said he was the victim of German transcendentalism. They said that his ideas were too puerile even to be criticised or rebuked uh, and that it would be forgotten within the next 10 years. Well, it wasn't forgotten, um, and in fact... This idea, which we now know as, uh, as, as symbiosis or strictly mutualism, uh, over the years we discovered more and more organisms which this applied to, sea anemones, beans, butterflies. Do you know that the common bluebell in your woods has a relationship with 12 different fungal and bacterial partners? So this idea has become widely accepted and even more so when we discovered that every complex cell is actually made up of two different organisms. Complex cells were formed when one form of simple cell entered another and became its nucleus. So every complex organism evolves from this one act of symbiosis and, and mutualism. Um, and, 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 and this says something really important about the role of cooperation in evolution. Because traditionally since Darwin, we've thought of it as entirely down to competition. But we have to rethink that, that has shaped our thinking. And we really have to rethink that and see that cooperation has been as important as competition in in driving forward evolution. But that's not the end of the story of the lichen, because um, in the 1960s, an an American scientist called Tony Spriboli discovered that there were not two organisms in lichen, there were three there was algae, a fungi, and a yeast. And, and to cut this story rather short, once he'd found there were three, it kind of opened the floodgates. And other scientists began looking at lichen in, in, in Belfast and um, in, in German universities, in Colorado, and they discovered more and more organisms that formed part of the lichen. Until eventually, two Austrian microbiologists studying something called the tree lungwort named 800 different things living within a lichen. Spriboli himself added more and then announced that lichen is not a species, it's a whole dynamic system. In um, <clears throat> terms of our current interest in pronouns, it's not an I, it's a we. The lichen is legion. And this idea has been applied to, you'll see why I'm spending time on this, this, this idea has been applied to trees, for example. If you look at a tree, 50% of what we see of a tree, sorry, what we see of the tree is only 50%. Another 50% is underground. And that underground is actually a mass of cooperating organisms, of, of fungi, of cyanobacteria, of, of algae, of all sorts of things. And who is to say which of those is the dominant partner? Which of the trip part which part of the tree is really the tree? And this same idea you can apply to human beings. Um, According to the Human Microbiome Project, there are 10,000 different species living within our human body, everything from eyelashes down to toenails. And in fact, ba- the bacteria alone in our bodies number in trillions, not millions, in trillions. And they affect every physical function that we have, as well as affecting our mood and our behavior. The bacterial cells in our body outnumber the human cells by a fact which might be as high as 10 to 1. We couldn't survive without them. We are more bacteria than we are human. And who's to say whether it's Bob Gilbert standing up here giving you this talk or a mass of bacteria. Um, but, But the wonderful kind of conclusion from that is, I mean the question is am I an I, but the wonderful conclusion is that we are all of us embodied community. And I love kind of reaching that conclusion from this simple powdery thing which grows on the trees or the tombstones or the walls outside your house. Something infinite behind everything appears and, and a simple lichen leads us to amazing places. I have probably implied through that that you need to be a naturalist to notice these things, but you don't. You don't need to be a naturalist to see the fruit ripening on the street trees at the moment. You don't need to be a naturalist to notice the fascinating shapes of the seeds, for example, on the plants that grow in the grass or in the gutter. You know, the long pods of the cress, or the heart-shaped seed heads of the shepherd's purse or the Edward hand type uh, claw-like things that grow on uh, cranesbills. And you don't need to know these names either, but just to notice the shapes of seeds, for example, Or to notice, you don't need to be a scientist or a naturalist to notice the shapes that lichen form on bark. Leonardo da Vinci said that in the lines of a lichen on a wall, an artist can see a whole landscape. And you don't need to be a naturalist to look closely at a moss. Look at the cushions of moss. There are grey varieties, there are grey varieties growing on top of a wall. And at almost every time of year, and they're there at the moment, although less so, but they are there. On the top of that cushion, they grow out these little filaments, these really thin, wiry filaments, on top of which are these tapering spore cases. And if you get down and you look at that really closely, it's like peering into a forest, or it's like you're looking into a city full of minarets. And the key to all this, to noticing, is that first line in the Oliver poem. It's, pay attention. Um, my friend, Brother Sam, who was going to be here today, but he's sick apparently, and I believe he's, talk, he's given a talk here as well. S- S- Sam Double, he wrote, a, uh, he was co-authored of a book recently called Seeing Differently. Incidentally, we go out for a monthly urban walk together. He wrote in, in, in Seeing Differently, sin is essentially inattention. John Main, the theologian who had so much to do with Christian meditation, put it the other way around, and perhaps more positively. He said, love Sorry, attentiveness is love. A text, really, that I, I've adopted. Not this because it's very short. Attentiveness is love. So I'm suggesting to you that being attentive, that walking with awareness is, in fact, a spiritual discipline. About 40 years ago, I'm a Quaker, by the way, even though I'm married to an Anglican priest. Uh, in, I came, in a Quaker meeting house, I came across the works of Tik Nathan. Some of you may know that wonderful Uh, Vietnamese Buddhist who died just last year and who who developed the idea of mindfulness years before it became trendy and fashionable and years before it became separated from any ethical or spiritual dimension but reading his book I came across this this wonderful quote he said you have heard that it is a miracle to fly in the air or walk upon water but I tell you the real miracle is learning to walk on the earth and I think that what we, that, 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 that's a miracle, I should say, that we can all try to practice. It's a miracle that you can practice when you're walking to the shops or when you're walking the dog or when you're walking the children to school. Having said that, it's probably harder when you're walking the children to school, so you could do it on the way back instead. What we need to discover is this idea of a pilgrimage of the local. It's a way of hollowing our own patch, a pilgrimage of the local. In 2009, I moved with my family to Poplar in the east end of London. I had never expected or intended to live there, but my wife was uh, ordained as a priest and we spent the next 13 years in the parish of Poplar. And I I decided to use moving there as a kind of new canvas and to do a, a sort of pilgrimage in which I would walk every street, every road, every alley, every estate within the parish of Poplar. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever read Barry Lopez's this wonderful book called Arctic Dreams. He, um, he says in that that he, he met uh, an Inuit man in the Anak Pass and this guy says to him, whenever I come to a new place, I listen. I listen to what the land has to say to me. And that's what I was trying to, do. urban areas are landscapes too, by the way. Um, And that's what I wanted to do. I I wanted to listen to what the land had to say to me. Um, And that that listening actually led to a book, a book that I'd never intended to write uh, because I was working on something else at the time. But it's one of the books out there, a book called Ghost Trees. And if I find the right page, I just want to uh, read you to the introduction from that about this process, this this pilgrimage through Poplar. I became the recorder of plants that grow in the cracks of pavements or lived out their brief lives at the base of a lamppost. I was the curator of ferns that frequented the wall beneath a broken downpipe, of birds that nested in gutter or garden bush, of spiders that spanned their untidy webs around the lights in a dingy underpass. I was friend to the weed and the woodlouse, the Walden of moths and slimes and mosses. Perhaps I should give credit to the author Richard Adams, although in a roundabout sort of way, For the enthusiasm with which i'd come to address the task browsing many years ago in a second-hand bookshop i'd picked up a copy of one of his works it wasn't one of the more familiar novels water ship down or the plague dogs or shardick but a more personal nature diary based on a year spent on the isle of man the details are vague to me now but i can remember placing it in the mental category of those idyllic rural reminiscences that make you wonder where your own life went so wrong the ones where otters frolic on the front lawn of an isolated farmhouse or life's major worry is the red deer causing havoc in the cabbage patch what still stands out clearly however is the passage that i had opened at random the author is forced to make a brief trip to london and breaking off from his string of inspiring rural observations Comments rather sourly, this is nothing but a few crocuses blooming in a dismal hotel garden. The envious in me turns to evangelical. There was, I wanted to exclaim, on behalf of city dwellers, so much more than that. I wanted to tell him of the black redstart I had seen feeding in front of a builder's bulldozer, of the pheasant I had found foraging on an urban allotment, of the skylarks I had heard singing in a landscape of chemical works and pylons. I would, in this imaginary but nonetheless animated conversation, continue with stories of Dyer's greenweed on an urban hillside, of the rare Jersey cudweed appearing on a busy Dockland path, of the gatekeepers and brimstones and mint moths and Jersey tigers that had appeared in my own backyard. There is wildness in the unexpected eruption of nature into the everyday, and it is these small joys that we must learn to treasure. I've cut that short a bit because I've got an eye on the clock here. It's very handy, I've been given a very large one. Um, there is so this pilgrimage involved walking miles without actually going very far at all. But I want to suggest also that you can do a pilgrimage without moving anywhere. Um, outside our front door, now in Upper Holloway, we had a, a rowan tree. And the berries form on a rowan tree quite early in the season, and they are a beautiful glowing red. Uh, And if you see them on a a grey day, it's like they've got, they're like lanterns, it's like they've got some internal light source of their own. But what fascinated me was the sequence of birds throughout the months that came to feed on these berries on the rowan tree on an urban street. It started with the wood pigeons, because the wood pigeons will come and feed on them before they're even ripe. And wood pigeons were a bit too big for the trees, so they were hanging onto these branches and, 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 and waving up and down and trying to bite at the, at the berries at the same time. Once the wood pigeons move on, you get the starlings flocking in. And the starlings come in these family groups which chatter and bicker amongst each other. And, and, and it's like a noisy crowd going into a fast food restaurant and then after the starlings the blackbirds came and then the missile thrushes and missile thrushes you can tell because they make this, this rattling noise which reminds me of, you know those old football rattles that people used to cheer that's the noise of the missile thrush and when the missile thrushes go if you're really lucky right in the heart of winter the redwings come and last year we, even though it wasn't a cold winter at all we had large numbers of redwing coming into our street and even into our back garden and feeding on these rowan so you can do a pilgrimage just by looking at one thing over a, a period of time. Here's another poem. I saw it on the, um, uh, it's, it was one of the poems on the underground, and I, and I saw it there, and I didn't have anything with me to write it down. So when I got home, I wrote it down, and I could only remember three of the verses, and I can't remember who wrote it. So apologies, because I don't know who wrote this poem. You might be able to tell me afterwards. I will study the grass till I obtain the degree of doctor of grass. I will study the clouds until I become a master of clouds. I will walk with all things till all things come to know me. Perhaps we all need to get degrees in detail, I would suggest. And I then extended this idea of pilgrimage in one place because I then sat in my garden and I observed a single tree, a plane tree, over an entire year. I did get up occasionally and move about. Now, I, I, I spent up to half an hour every day just sitting and looking at this plane tree. Um, sometimes just in silence, sometimes making a couple of notes, sometimes sketching it. Uh, personal confession, I have meditated on and off for 30 years, and I've never been any good at it, and I'm still not. Everything, everything interferes in my head. But watching that tree was the most successful meditative exercise I have ever done. And I missed it, actually, when I stopped. Um, So, I've talked about digging where you stand and, 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 and the importance of attentiveness, the idea of a pilgrimage, of a local pilgrimage, of a pilgrimage in one place. I just want to apply, in the last minutes that I've got, I want to apply that idea of digging where you stand to um, to something about spiritual traditions as well. While we were on Iona, we were volunteering, actually, because we're members of the Iona community, we were volunteering at the abbey there, but one of the things that went on there was there was a course on Celtic spirituality, um, the future of the Celtic past. But what disturbed me slightly was that the majority of the participants had flown in from the USA and from Canada to be on that course. Now, it wasn't just, it disturbed me environmentally, but it also disturbed me. This, um, that people felt the need really, people who have this rich indigenous tradition in their own countries felt the need to come to pursue a slightly romanticised idea of spirituality in a different Country, um, and I want to suggest really that that this idea of God as manifested in nature, this idea of the second book, is one that is present in most spiritual traditions. You don't need to go to Scotland for it; you can find it in your own spiritual tradition. And as an English person um, living in England at a time when it is almost embarrassing to say you're English, I'd be particularly interested in in looking for that in the English tradition. And it's there; it's there, and it's really rich. It's there, for example, in Anglo-Saxon poetry, in those alliterative constructions, um, and in the riddles, which really deal with the beauty of the natural form. It's there in the 8th century poem, The Dream of the Rood," which has this really unusual perspective of describing the crucifixion from the point of view of the tree that was cut down to make the cross. It's there in um, the 14th century writing of Julian of Norwich, who sees the whole of the universe in the palm uh, sorry, in a hazelnut in the palm of her hand, and it's there particularly in the 16th century writings of Thomas Traherne. Thomas Traherne, one of my own special favourites. Um, his poetry was described as amongst the best of the metaphysicals, and yet he was almost completely unknown in his lifetime. And his greatest work, the Centuries of Meditation, was actually lost, and we wouldn't know about it wasn't if it were not found in 1897 in a series of notebooks on a market stall, in, 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 on a barrow in a market in London. And Traherne sees creation as, as full of glory, but he also sees it as a personal richness, a personal but shared richness. And he talks of the need to see with the eyes of a child. And, and for and for Tom Stroud, almost everything is intense and beautiful. My wealth was everywhere all around me, something infinite behind everything appears, which are really important lines, I think, in a time when we're trying to talk about joy in enough rather than pleasure in plenty. But my but my absolutely favourite lines of Thomas Traherne, and you, you'll understand where my theology comes from when I tell you that I first heard these in a song by a band called The Incredible String Band, which probably very few of you now remember, but um, it you'll never enjoy the world aright till the sea itself floweth in your veins and you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars and see yourself to be the sole heirs of the world and all that's in it and more than so because there are men and women among you who are themselves sole heirs each and every one for sheer joy in creation you can't beat thomas Traherne, but you can match it you can match it in william blake seeing Um, eternity in a grain of sand or heaven in a wildflower you can see it in in Coleridge you can see it in um, Gerard Manley Hopkins the world is charged with the grandeur of God and you can see it in the great tradition of uh, the great tradition in English in England we had of parson naturalists and as someone married to a priest I took a particular interest in these parson naturalists who were people who over a period of 300 years um, combined their, 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 their belief in God with a study of the natural world and they were really the developers of ecology because they looked at nature where it was and as it was not in books or, or, or in dead specimens and I'd love to talk longer about the parson naturalists but I haven't got time I'll just mention the greatest of them I think was a man called John Ray and John Ray he developed, um, he, de- he-, he developed one of the early systems of taxonomy of, 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 of scientific label of things and developed a system which was then taken up and improved and developed by Linnaeus to give us the system that we have today. But he, he, wrote a, he-, he developed an idea he called natural theology and he wrote about it in a book called The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Nature. The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Nature. And in that book, he wrote, among other things, the contemplation of God's creation should be part of everyone's duty on the Sabbath day. I love that idea. Go to church or to Quaker meeting on Sunday morning in the afternoon, 30 minutes compulsory contemplation of nature. There is an idea throughout the Hebrew scriptures that the whole of nature is in the act of praising God, that the whole of nature praises God. It's there in Genesis, in that great swelling creation hymn that opens the Bible, in which God saw that it was good. Six times that line is repeated. God saw that it was good six times, and the seventh time, God saw that it was very good. It's there in Job, in that wonderful poem that's about the last 11 chapters of Job, in which Job wrestles with the wonder, the dread, and the unknowability of nature. It's there in Isaiah, The mountains and the hills shall burst into song and the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. It's there particularly in the Psalms. All the earth worships and sings praises to you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Not all of nature is nice or kind or pretty, but in its completeness, in its connectedness, in its complexity, In the ongoing business of creation, nature praises God. Creation praises God. It's exuberant with it. As in Psalm 148. Praise God, sun and moon. Praise God, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heaven, and all you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy winds fulfilling his command. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals and cattle, creeping things and flying birds, let them praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, all your bacteria. Praise him, street weeds, sparrows and spiders. Praise him, the lichen on the bark and the moss on the wall. Praise him, the pigeons in my rowan tree, squabbling starlings and the magpie that woke me at six o'clock this morning. Let them praise the name of the Lord. At a time when the natural world is under threat, when the rate of extinction is accelerating at an alarming rate, we have a duty to join that chorus and wherever we are, to voice our own psalm of praise. Pay attention, be amazed, talk about it. Thank you.